And I would again greet you in, with the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1 and verse 7, when he said, To all that be in Rome, may I change that and say, To all that be here at Bethel, uh, beloved of God, called to be saved, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, if there's anything that we need, it's grace and peace uh, as we live in a, in a very, very troubled world. As you know from my message title, that I'm going to speak to you on the sinfulness of man tonight and tomorrow night. The, uh, the text I will be exploring with you is Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 32. Uh, I believe that uh, the uh, verses 19 through 32 uh, do give exposition to uh, verse 18 uh, in, uh, in this particular text. So we'll be looking at, uh, at uh, the... Uh, the exposition of the uh, doctrine of sin as is given to us in, uh, in this particular passage. As we noticed last night, Paul introduces the doctrine of salvation in the, in the prologue of, of Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, by referencing the gospel and the power of the gospel. It would seem logical then that Paul would use the truth of the power of the gospel and its revelation of the of the gospel and the, the righteousness of God as a springboard to go on and give exposition to the doctrine of salvation. But suddenly in verse 18, Paul switches his focus from the gospel of our salvation and the righteousness of God to how God's wrath, how the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man. So here in verse 18 of Romans chapter 1, Paul makes a radical shift uh, and does a, a lengthy, lengthy exposition begins a lengthy exposition, what I call an expose, on the sinfulness of man and moral depravity of uh, human nature. Beginning in verse 18 and going all the way to chapter 3 and verse 20. What we have here then in this next section of Romans is the most extensive expose of sin and the doctrine of sin and the sinfulness of man that, that is found in, in all of Holy Scripture. Allow me to, to give, before I read this passage, uh, the beginning of verse 18 through uh, uh, verse 32 of Romans 1, allow me to give a brief overview of this extensive expose of the sinfulness of man that you have, beginning in verse 18, all the way through chapter 3 and verse 20, because I, I believe it's important. It's easy to get lost in, uh, in this section and uh, not see where Paul is going 
uh, in, in this extensive section on, on the sinfulness of men. And so allow me to give you a brief overview of this extensive section of the, on the sinfulness of man that we have, beginning at verse 18 of Romans chapter 1, all the way through chapter 3, and about verse 20. So first of all, here in uh, verses, uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 32, we have a description of the depravity of the pagan Gentile world. This, this section that we're looking at this evening uh, forcefully reminds us of the uh, pervasive nature of sin. This passage teaches us something of the end result of sin if it is pursued to its logical end. In this section, Paul doesn't tell us how human nature was contaminated or became polluted with the, the virus of sin. He's going to tell us how that happened in Romans chapter 5. But he's going to tell us how uh, that, uh, in this section, he's going to teach us what happens when men and women follow their sinful propensity, uh, their sinful tendencies. Because uh, sin has the uh, ability to deaden the conscience uh, and uh, the, uh, the, the um, because of that, the practice of sin will put one on a slippery slope to moral depravity. Now, I'm going to be using the word depravity a number of times here uh, this evening, but I want you to know that uh, I, I use the word depravity not as our, our Calvinist friends use, use the term depravity, but I, I'm using the word depravity in, in its uh, in, in its basic uh, uh, meaning, according to its basic meaning uh, of the word. Uh, and, and as I understand the word depravity in its basic meaning, it, it means that sin corrupts, it perverts, it depraves, it twists uh, a man's moral nature. And so I'm, going, I'm using the word depravity here in that sense, and I want you to, uh, to understand that. So... Um, so, in this section, Paul gives, as I see it, seven progressive steps by which an individual or a society forsakes the knowledge of God and ends up in the sinful perversity of uh, paganism. And so, uh, what we, so, in this first section, that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. And, and then in the second section, in chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, all the way through chapter 3 and verse 8, uh, is, uh, he, he gives us, Paul then uh, does an expose of the sinful perversity of the religious Jews. I, I find this section that we'll be looking at tomorrow evening to be a rather complex section, passage, in which Paul shows how a religion, a religious person can be blinded to his own sinfulness because of his self-righteousness. In, in this section, uh, Paul does a, a masterful job of exposing the sins and the failures of the religious Jews who thought himself to be better, a better person than his pagan neighbor. And so that's what we have in, in that next section 
which we'll look at tomorrow evening. Also tomorrow evening, we'll continue to look at the, the, the last section of, uh, of this extensive section on the sinfulness of man, which is chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, where Paul then uh, declares all men to be equally sinful and equally guilty before God. Um, you see, in, in chapter 1, here in Romans 18 to 32, Paul brings the pagan Gentiles into the courtroom of heaven, as it were, not only shows how, how, how he becomes pagan and perverse in his sinfulness, and, and he indicts the pagan Gentiles as guilty before God. Then in chapter 2, verse 1, through chapter 3 and verse 8, Paul also brings the religious Jews into the same courtroom of heaven and indicts him as a guilty sinner before God. But now in this third section of chapter 3 and verse 9 to verse 20, then Paul concludes his exposition of the sinfulness of man and, and uses quotes from the Old Testament to, to prove that all men are equally sinful and equally guilty before God. So he, he eventually, in the final end, he brings all men into the courtroom of heaven. And, uh, and brings an indictment of their sinfulness uh, uh, before God. Now, so the way I'm going to deal with this extensive section here is I'm going to take two evenings, as I indicated, to work my way through this uh, extensive passage. And tonight I will attempt to give exposition to the first section here in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. Before I look at this uh, section, uh, let me say that I, I, do not, uh, I do not take delight in, uh, in giving exposition to a passage such as we have before us this evening. In fact, I, I almost feel apologetic uh, for doing so in a gathering of things uh, such as this one here this evening. Um, I also feel strongly that we do well to look at this text, the Holy Scripture. If nothing else, it helps us understand the uh, contemporary society in which we're living. And as I indicated, it also should help us realize that sin and disobedience to God puts us on a very slippery slope of moral degeneration. Receiving sin when it is accommodated in one's personal life, will take one further down the path of sinful perversity than one intends or wants to go. And the reason this is so is that the practice of sin twists and, and perverts our moral judgment. And, and as uh, Brother Milo indicated, one's understanding is darkened. And so uh, it, is, it is important that we understand that sin is much more devastating to the human personality than most of us imagine. So, um, I will go ahead and uh, I will look at this passage with you and I'm going to do so unapologetically. Furthermore, like I tell my students at SBI, 
No, I'm, I'm not responsible for producing this text. Uh, it has been given to us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I do take it as my responsibility, however, as a minister of the gospel, by the aid of the Holy Spirit, to seek to give exposition to it for our understanding and for our edification. But before I, I uh, again, before I read the text, um, uh, I want to ask the question. Why, why, why this extensive exposition, this extensive exposition uh, by the Apostle Paul of the uh, sinfulness of man uh, here in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to chapter 3, verse 20? Why, why begin with this? Well, uh, let me put forth two reasons for that. Number one, um, I believe that understanding man's sinfulness is important to understanding man himself. You see, secular psychology and sociology misunderstand man, therefore give long solutions to the human predicament because they don't take into account the sinful propensity of, of man. So, I believe that the one of proper understanding of man, it's important that we uh, uh, understand man's sinful propensity, as is given here in this passage. Secondly, I'm, I'm convinced that understanding our sinfulness is important to comprehending and appreciating the doctrine of our salvation. I'll probably be saying more about that uh, later. But uh, those are at least two reasons why I believe that uh, we are given this extensive expose of the uh, sinfulness of man. Now, uh, I want to say this yet before I give, uh, read the text. Um, you will pardon me for uh, uh, my extensive introduction here. Uh, you know, I've been known to just preach my introduction <laughs> and, and, and don't get any further. But I, I hope to get further tonight than that um, because I do want to get into this text. But uh, I, I just want to say that Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, refutes the evolutionary model or paradigm of human anthropology. Anthropology has to do with the study of ancient man and ancient cultures. The evolutionary model or paradigm of ancient man is that life started in some simple form, how nobody knows for sure. But after eons of time, this simple life form became more complex until it became an ape-like creature Finally, the ape developed into a human being living in a cave somewhere, and though still very barbaric, he eventually developed into a highly sophisticated man and woman who sits in front of his laptop computer and via Facebook tells someone on the other side of the globe all about his meaningless existence. And all that in a matter of minutes. <laughs> Not interesting. 
Well, Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 32, gives us a different paradigm of human anthropology. Ancient man didn't start as a barbaric caveman who eventually became aware of a god somewhere and then developed rituals by which to worship a god he imagined to exist. No, no. That's not the way it happens. Ancient man was very intelligent from the very get-go because he was created in the image of God. But because, he has, as verse 18 says in Romans chapter 1, but because he held the truth in unrighteousness, he rejected the revelation of God and then rejected the knowledge of God as well as the worship of God and became an idolater. From there, sinful man became more and more depraved until he lost his moral and spiritual sensitivity and became pagan, hedonistic, and narcissistic. Francis Schaeffer said, atheistic philosophies of the origin of man are popular, not because of their intellectual appeal, but because people have chosen to rebel against God. That's, that's saying it well, I believe, uh, as we look at it here in, in this, these passages. Now, um, I'm going to read the text. I'm going to read verses 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 18 to 32, uh, which is the uh, extended text that I'm going to be looking at here this evening. And so, uh, would you stand with me to the reading of the Word? In Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifested in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness, through the lusts of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie, and worshiped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affection. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, Burned in their lusts one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. And even as, excuse me, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind 
to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, and wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, and they which commit, commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. You may be seated. I believe that the, uh, the ushers have some handouts to give out if you would do that at this time. Um, yes, thank you. Appreciate that. As uh, those handouts are being given out, uh, they uh, they give you at least part of my teaching outline for this session, and uh, uh, allow me to just reflect on a few things before I come to that particular uh, handout uh, and uh, what it depicts. Uh, but let me say that uh, this graphic description of how a simple man or a society became becomes depraved, is timeless in its application. It seems to me that here you have a description how the, of how the pre-flood world of Noah's day became wicked and evil in Genesis chapter 6. I believe this, uh, this, this description also, it, it helps us understand how Sodom and Gomorrah came to be what it was as given in Genesis chapter 19. Not only that, but it shows us how the Canaanite nations became right for, right for the judgment of God during Joshua's time. It is no doubt a description of the pagan world of Paul's day, especially in the cultural center of Rome. And furthermore, I believe it describes our modern world's long plunge into paganism and moral depravity. Paul begins this section by talking about the revelation of the wrath of God. Paul declares that the, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. I was, I was asking my wife this morning as I was thinking about this, what does that mean? What does it really mean that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven? I understand the wrath of God is revealed in Scripture, but is, is, is that different than the wrath of God being revealed from heaven? If any of you have any insight into this, I'd be glad to know about that. But he, he begins this exposition of the doctrine of the sinfulness of man, reminding us of the revelation of the wrath of God. I find that the wrath of God, as it's given here, is not easily defined or explained. 
it, it has to do uh, it has to do with the condemnation that a guilty sinner is under because of his sin. I understand that. It has to do with sinful man being under the judgment of God. I understand that. You see, Ephesians chapter five and verse six tells us that that the wrath of God cometh upon the children of disobedience. You know, the scary thing about this, uh, about about sinful man, is that is that sinful man is often oblivious to being under the wrath of God. And 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 rest easy in his condition and his situation. That's scary. That that can happen that way. Jed Hacker said things about the wrath of God that God's wrath is revealed in Scripture is never a capricious or a divine emotion out of control. But it is a righteous and a necessary response to objective moral evil. So, so in other words, God's wrath has to do with God's opposition to sin and sinful man. It is how God, in His holiness, responds to the ungodliness and unrighteousness of man. Verse eighteen. I believe that uh, you can think of ungodliness as, <clears throat> as someone living as though God did not exist. And unrighteousness is someone living as though there were no right, moral, right or wrong way to live. Maybe that's a simplistic uh, explanation of ungodliness and unrighteousness. But it tells us something of, uh, of the meaning of these two long words. And so, uh, but here, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, the unrighteousness of man. Now, um, notice before I look further at verse 18 through 28 here that there are two dimensions, as I understand it. There might be more, but there are at least two dimensions of, of the wrath of God. Uh, we, we know this because there are two different words used in Greek to speak of the wrath of God, two main different words. And the, the one is the thumos of God, the wrath of God, the thumos of God. The, the thumos of God is, 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 describes the wrath of God when it is hot and vehemently expressed. Scripture speaks of times when God poured out His wrath on sinful man in this kind of way. You know, this this speaks of the hot outflow of God's judgment and wrath. Uh, God acting in tumults. This, this happens. This has happened various times in the history of man. Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, for instance. Uh, the rebellion of Paul, as another example. Uh, Ananias and Sapphira in, in the book of Acts were struck down in, in, in Acts chapter 5. John White said this, it's because 
we fail to grasp the horrendous nature of sin that the judgment of God, the wrath of God, bewilders us when it is hot and vehemently expressed. We stand, we stand back and, and, and wonder at the vehement expression the wrath of the wrath of God when it is expressed in that kind of way. Well, there's another uh, dimension to the wrath of God, and it's, it's the, the Greek word for gay. I'm probably not uh, pronouncing that properly, but be that as it may. This, this Greek word is used to speak of God's wrath here in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. That's, that's the, the uh, dimension of God's wrath that is referred to by Paul here. And uh, this expression of love does not pour out fire and brimstone, but it brews, it hovers, it hovers over, it abides, as, as Paul said in another place, on a simple man as long as he pursues after sin. And so then, the wrath of God that Rules over and hovers over uh, a sinful man will finally become the thumos of God on the final day of judgment. We understand that. But in the meantime, Paul is saying that the wrath of God is, is, is a brooding, hovering kind of, of, of judgment that uh, uh, expressed by God here over the uh, unrighteousness and the sinfulness a man. Now, uh, take a look at uh, the, uh, the the handout on, on the yes, only one side to this. I'm, I'm attempting to depict uh, the way I understand that Paul is uh, uh, giving expose here to the uh, the downward path. Uh, of sinful depravity here in verse 18 to 32. And uh, as, as I see it, uh, it, it, it seems to me that Paul is giving us seven steps to, to moral, moral depravity here in, uh, in these, uh, uh, what is it, uh, about uh, 14 verses or so. And, and so the seven steps that lead into uh, uh, a life of depravity. I hope this uh, diagram uh, can be helpful to you and help you visualize uh, what uh, uh, what Paul is uh, attempting to address here for us in this passage. So allow me to reflect on the uh, the, the seven um, steps that lead into a life of depravity. Uh, the first step, as Paul puts it. It's in verse 18 when he says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. So the first step away from God, the first step into moral depravity, is when a man or woman begins to hold the truth of God in unrighteousness. So what does that mean? How does one hold, how does a sinful man hold the truth of God in unrighteousness? Well, the Greek word for hold here means to hold off or to suppress 
or, or to, push, to push away from oneself. The, the German uses the word aufhalten. Anybody here understand German? Aufhalten. And, and the word aufhalten means exactly what the Greek word uh, indicates. It means to hold it up, to push something away from yourself. And so, a simple man, in his first step into moral depravity, pushes the truth and the truth of God away from himself. The, um, to, to hold the truth of God, it, it means to hold it in abeyance um, instead of embracing it for yourself. The problem here is not ignorance of the truth, but rebellion against the truth. It's always dangerous, it's always dangerous to push the truth of God away from yourself, whether it's the truth of God's existence or the truth of, as it relates to God and, and, and moral truth in general. It's always dangerous for a man or woman to reject, to, to hold it away from itself. Instead of embracing it, you, you push it away from yourself. You reject it. And J.C. Langer, in his, uh, uh, in his uh, um, commentary, a very short commentary on the Book of Romans, uh, says, simple man holds back or suppresses the truth by living opposite to the truth. I believe that is, is saying it well uh, and, a, and a good explanation of what this means. So not only does the simple man push away the truth, suppresses the truth, uh, holds it away from himself, pushes it away from himself, but he does so by, by giving himself to sinful living. And, and uh, you see the... Uh, and and, and the, the thing that happens is that the rejection of truth, uh, the rejection of truth usually results in spiritual and what I call judicial blindness. Ed and I are teaching our adult sensual uh, classes. Uh, Ed is teaching the ladies and I'm teaching the men. And, and we're going through the, the, the Gospel of John, and we're, we just got through Romans chapter, uh, Romans, uh, John, <laughs> I get these two books confused, basically. Uh, John chapter 7 and chapter 8. And there, in John chapter 7 and 8, you, you have this excellent uh, uh, example of the, the, the Jews, the, the Jewish rulers and leaders, the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, uh, in, in an ongoing uh, uh, debate with Jesus about his identity, who he is, and what he came to do. And, and, uh, but, but what you see there, as you follow that through, uh, the, the, the Jewish people, the, the Jewish leaders, were pushing what Jesus was saying away from themselves. They didn't like what, what Jesus was saying, so they rejected and pushed it away from themselves. And, and so they were inviting the spiritual blindness and, and uh, the judicial blindness.
out of their lives. And that's what happens when one begins to push the truth of God away from yourself, from oneself. And so the first step into moral depravity is to hold the truth of God in unrighteousness. The second step, as I see it in verses 19 to 20, is, uh, is that then man begins to ignore, now he has rejected the, the truth that has been revealed, but man, he ignores or rejects the revelation of God, verses 19 to 20. Allow me to read that again. Because that which may be known of God is manifested in them, for God has showed it unto them, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even in some power in Godhead, so that they are without excuse. You see, it seems to me that Paul is speaking here about rejecting the general revelation of God that is given to all men in, in, in two different ways. In the, first of all, the, the general revelation, or what I would call the inherent awareness of God, that I believe uh, is found in every human being as a result of being created in the, in the image of God. So there's an awareness of, of, of a divine being, an awareness of God. Someone has called this the heavy footprint of God imprinted on the soul of a man. You know, I, I find it interesting that if you, if you read the accounts of so many people, that it, it is interesting that there are no atheists among the Sony people groups. You know, when missionaries first came to North America, to the North American Indian people, they didn't have to convince them of the existence of a spirit world. <laughs> no, they were very much aware of the existence of a spirit world. Or they, they were aware that there was a God that they called the Great Spirit, the Money Pole. Why? Because they were created in the image of God. And that awareness is, is there in, I would say, inherently as a result of being created in this God. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, would uh, 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 talk about, uh, well, one way of saying it is eternity was in their hearts. And as someone has said, there's a God-shaped hole in every human heart. Well, I, I, can, I concur with that. And so there is that, that awareness that, uh, that then simple man begins to uh, uh, reject. And then there's also the other part of the general revelation of God that is observable by man in the cosmos, the created world. It, it speaks of that, especially in verse 20. Uh, verse 20, it tells us that the cosmos, the created world out there, the, the heavens for sure, uh, Psalm 19, verse 1, uh, the, the, the heavens declare the glory of God. The cosmos gives evidence of God's eternal power and Godhead. It was uh, Elizabeth Browning who said, Earth crammed with heaven. And every common bush shall flame with God. But only those who seek to take off their shoes and the rest sit around and pluck blackberries. 
interesting way of putting it. Someone has said that there's enough evidence of God in a flower not only to convince the child of the existence of God, but also to convince the scientists of the existence of God. Arthur Sproul wrote in The Psychology of Atheism that atheism has nothing to do with a man's supposed ignorance of God, but rather it has to do with man's dislike of God. People do not know God because they don't want to know God. Well, so there is the rejection of step one is pushing the truth of God away from yourself. The second is the rejection of the revelation of God, the general revelation of God. And then in verse 21, he speaks of rejecting the knowledge of God then. And, and, the, and the basic problem here is not the lack of information about God, but rejection of the information that is given about God. Note verse 28 when it says, they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. That does it very well. Yeah, I, I find that in, in this section, in, uh, here in beginning at verse 21, that that uh, the rejection of the knowledge of God comes about in three ways. And, and, and uh, to me, it's, uh, it's a bit alarming because uh, we, we can easily uh, sometimes fall into these categories. categories. Uh, uh, the three ways um, that are mentioned in, in verse 21. Uh, number one, they glorified him not as God. In other words, they did not give God his rightful place. It's important that we give God his rightful place in our lives. And so, by not glorifying him as God, they were not giving him his rightful place in their lives. So, still the beneficiaries of the gifts and the blessings of God, simple and man ignores and lives as though he didn't need God, as though he were the captain of his own soul, as it were. And so they glorified him not as God. Secondly, neither were thankful, in says. Uh, there are numerous verses in the New Testament that speaks of the importance of being thankful. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 20, giving thanks always for all things. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 17, and whatsoever you do in word or deed, to all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. First Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 17, In all things, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. Why is it important to give thanks? Here it says, neither were they thankful. <laughs> you see, the sin of great ungratefulness is rooted in in exalted notions about ourselves and our inadequate notions of God. Rebellion, as someone has said, against God does not begin with a clenched fist, but with a self-satisfied heart of one to whom, thank you, it's redundant. Do you give thanks? <laughs> it's important to give thanks. 
glorified and not of God, neither were thankful, became lame in their imaginations. You know, when, when this, you know, when, when sinful man becomes vain in his imagination, uh, when this happens, man becomes, as someone has said, a philosopher instead of a worshiper. You know, one's imaginations have to do with that faculty of the mind that causes one to think creatively, creatively, if I can say it right. It, it is the seat from which spring our thoughts and our reasoning ability. I'm talking about our imagination. And one who has become main in his imagination has lost his or her ability to think rightly and reason correctly, and, and so the thought patterns become corrupted and twisted. I believe Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, depicts this condition in the pre-flood world when he says that uh, the, the uh, uh, man was only evil continually in his imagination. Um, furthermore, I believe this depicts, depicts the uh, American culture in the 21st century. So, catching uh, up with ourselves, the uh, first step away from God into moral depravity is pushing the truth away, uh, of God away from yourself uh, and, and rejecting the, uh, the revelation of God that God has given and then rejecting the knowledge of God. And then he forsakes in verses 22 and 23 the, the, the worship of God. And, and when man forsakes the worship of God, man doesn't stop being a worshiper. He merely changes the object of his worship and becomes an idolater. So he's really talking about man here becoming in this, in, in this fourth step an, an idolater. And it's just the... Uh, he now worships representations of God rather than the true God. He now worships and serves the creature of the created world, even himself, <laughs> rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Ultimately, this leads to the deification of man and the deification of self. You know, idol worship is characterized by changing, as it says here, or exchanging the glory of God and substituting it for some poor representations of God made by corruptible man. <laughs> what, a, what an insult. What a slap in the face of God by mortal man. You take note of verse 22. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. That 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 that's very well. Well, now I would I would draw your attention back to the uh, the handouts, and uh, I, I want you to notice here that uh, at the, after the uh, the fourth uh, step into moral depravity, that there seems to be in the text. There seems to be a moral, what I call a moral watershed. Uh, there, something happens 
something happens between 23, verse 23 and 24 here. Um, and and the, the tilt, the tilt toward moral depravity becomes more pronounced. A moral shift takes place at this point, and man's slide into sinful depravity becomes more aggressive. Are you still with me? Uh, you know, um, you need to pray for me because, you know, there, there was a time in, in my preaching, in my early years of preaching, where I would as I would go to the pulpit, I'd pray for a miracle of increase. You know, um, take this few loaves and fish <laughs> and, uh, and increase them to feed these people gathered here. In the last number of years, I've come to the place where I don't pray for a miracle of increase. I pray for a miracle of decrease. You understand what I'm saying? So there, there's, there's a massive amount of material here right? and, and truth here that, that uh, I, I'm pounding away at. I, I'm not getting it all. I want you to know that. You, you never know how much I'm leaving out here. Uh, but uh, uh, I, I'm, I seek the Lord that He gives me understanding and wisdom as I minister to you in the process of ministry. Uh, what, what to leave out and what to include. So, so keep praying for me here <laughs> uh, as, we, as we continue to look at this. So I, I wanted to see that there's a moral watershed that takes place between verses 23 and 24. Uh, there, there's, a, there's, there's a phrase here in verses 24, 26, and 28 that is repeated three times and in, in the text, in the, in the original text, in the Greek text, this, this phrase, it, it, it's, uh, it, it's the same phrase. Uh, it's translated in, uh, as, as God giving them up or God giving them over. This means that God takes, as, as, as I see it, this means that God takes his restraining hand away and turns sinful man over to his own way. And, and the consequence of God removing his restraining hand from sinful man is that uh, sinful man now slides faster into a life of sinful depravity. And, and there are reasons for that. I already mentioned some of them, but let me, let me just continue on here with, uh, with what Paul is doing here. And in this particular spot here, in this moral, what I call this moral watershed. The old Phillips translation puts it this way, they gave up God, therefore God gave them up to their foul desires. And again, I believe that this speaks uh, God uh, turning man over, sinful man over, or giving sinful man up speaks of a judicial, a judicial abandonment of, of, of a man to his sinful ways. And to the consequences of his sinful lifestyle. And, and so a sinful man, as a result, now becomes more perverse. 
in an aggressive kind of way. And, 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 and as I see this, this is, this, this is God giving a man up to his sinful ways. It's an act of divine judgment upon sinful men. It's part, if you please, uh, to, to the loss of God. As I see it, uh, as again, verse, verses 19 to 21, is in a sense called an exposition of the revelation of the loss of God. How this is expressed in different stages and at different times. So there comes a point in time when in the life of an individual, in his pursuit after sin, that God gives him over, he takes his restraining hand away and allows him to plunge into a life of godlessness and wickedness in a, in a more unrestrained way. And, and as verse 27 says, it, 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 it is... Uh, it, 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 if God does this so that sinful men can receive in themselves the recompense of their error, which was meet. And I believe the NIV gives the proper sense of this phrase by translating it, receiving in themselves the due penalty of their perversion. And, and so unrestrained sinful living does have consequences. Just look at society around you and you see that devastating consequences in the human personality. All of this, as someone has said, um, I believe it was Leon Morris who said, all of this reminds us that, after all, we are living in a moral universe. <laughs> we really are. Well, there is, there is much to be said about this. Uh, uh, allow me just to notice the... Uh, the three, three times they talked about God abandoning a man to his sinful ways. And the first one is verses 24 and 25, where he, he is abandoned to moral uncleanness. It is clear in verses 24 and 25 that the uncleanness that God is giving man over to has to do with moral or sexual uncleanness. And this moral uncleanness is the result of the lust that is in their heart. So the first thing that takes place when God abandons man is to his own ways is that he is given over to sexual immorality, to fornication and adultery, immorality of a heterosexual nature. That's the first step in the after this moral in this moral watershed. These sexual sins are part and parcel of man worshiping and serving the creature instead of the creator. As Wordsby says, self deification leads to self-indulgence. And such acts of sinful, sexual uncleanness leaves devastating consequences in the human personality. Paul refers to this in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 18. Because every time that one engages in sexual intimacy outside of the covenant of marriage, one violates the sanctity of his sexuality and, and consequently is left empty and void in the, at, the, at the very core of his being. And at this stage, uh, verse 25, 
um, he turns the truth of God into a lie and worships and serves the creature more than the creator. You know, the lie that a man gives himself to is, that, is the lie that mortal man can find ultimate fulfillment within himself through personal pleasure. And folks, that's not where ultimate fulfillment is found. Where is it found? In Jesus. The psalmist says, in thy presence, in fullness of what? Joy and pleasure forevermore. That's where we find it, that ultimate fulfillment for which we were created. So it's abandoned tomorrow and clean. And then the second, the next step, and it's actually the sixth step in, in man's moral slide away from God, is, is abandoned to vile affections, verses 26 and 27. And after reading these verses, there should be no doubt in our minds that in this next step of moral depravity has to do with the perversion of homosexuality and lesbianism. The, what, what today is, is termed LBGT lifestyle. <laughs> I find it very uh, uh, disconcerting that liberal theologians in our day declare that the scriptures do not condemn the sin of homosexuality. But, but notice what Paul says uh, here in verses 26 and 27. The term vile affections reflects the fact that homosexual desires are degrading, shameful, and perverse. Paul declares that such acts are against nature, meaning that they are not normal, they are contrary to divine design. They are unseemly, Paul says, meaning they are shameful, disgraceful, and perverted. So the sin of homosexuality has what, what, what's an accepted norm in, in Roman culture in Paul's day, especially in culture centers like the cities of, of Rome and, and Ephesus and the city of Corinth. And, and contrary to, uh, to contemporary thoughts, Homosexuality is not an inborn tendency. I, I well remember 50, 50 years ago, about 50 years ago, a young man came to me and eventually told me about his struggle with the sin of homosexuality. He hesitated to tell me because he expected me to reject him as a person. I also remember how, as he was talking to me, the, the feelings that he, he expressed. He, he, he struggled with a, a deep sense of, of loss of identity as a man. He was certainly experiencing what Paul talks about here when he says he was experiencing the due penalty of his error. Verse 27. So homosexuality then is a disruption and a violation of the divinely created order of human sexuality and is the result of man's fallenness. It was Stuart Driscoll in his little commentary on the book of Romans, uh, especially in verses 26 and 7, 27, makes this interesting observation. He said, it is particularly unfortunate that the term gay 
has become a synonym for homosexual because both biblical truth and practical observation point to the fact that there is more evidence of penalty than deity in those who live homosexually. And before I, I leave this, uh, this step, step number six, I, 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 I must hasten on to say, and to emphasize the fact that forgiveness and freedom from sin, the sin of homosexuality, as well as any other sexual sin, or any other sin, can be had through the blood of the cross and through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. First Corinthians chapter six and verses nine and eleven, he says, "But some, that's for some of you, <laughs> just like this. But you're washed. <laughs> but you're cleansed. You're sanctified. Yes, it's the blood of Jesus takes care of this sin and all sins." Well, the the last step. I, I see the clock now, but I can barely see what time it is. <laughs> but I want to draw this to a close. Um, you know, the, 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 the seventh step here is to, is man is abandoned to a reprobate mind. What does that mean? Verse 28. Well, a reprobate mind is a depraved mind. A mind that is set adrift from its small uh, moorings, where good is evil and evil is good. You know, in our day, it allows mothers and fathers to kill and destroy their offspring, their children before they're born, and to call it their right to choose. A reprobate mind causes one, as Paul says in verse 28, to do those things not convenient. Isn't that interesting? In other words, it means to do things not proper, not decent, but loathsome. <laughs> the, the Amplified gives it that way. You see, a reprobate mind, a reprobate mind, will result in a life of unbridled narcissism. And, and by that I mean one given over to extreme self-love and selfishness at the core of his being. And, that, and, and now, in verse 20, verses 29 to 31, as uh, I attempted to depict the fear, I enlisted the, the sins, that this extensive list of sins that, that is given us. 23 sins that Paul depicts here then that, uh, that results out of, uh, that, that flow out of a reprobate mind. It's in the hyenas list that uh, is uh, an extensive list. And, and uh, you do well. I, I'm not going to look at this list uh, uh, and, and it would take another 45 minutes, but uh, and I'm not going to do that. But I encourage you to uh, just not just pass this by, but but look at some of the things that, that Paul is, is giving here. That is the result of a, of a reprobate mind. Finally, take notice the implication of verse 32 when he says. To knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, the revelation of the wrath of God, not only the 
this is it. Not only do the same, but those who take pleasure in them that do that. What are the implications of that? You see, I understand what Paul is saying here is that one can vicariously. Uh, by, by vicariously, I mean you can do it through someone else. The, 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 Jesus' death was vicarious in that it was done for us. It wasn't for himself. It was done for us. So his death was vicarious. But, but one can vicariously enter into the sins of others and become guilty of the same sins without actually doing the sins themselves. Is, is that what Paul is saying here? Perhaps he is speaking of those who went to the arenas of Rome and allowed themselves to be entertained and get a rush from watching the violence and the killing that went on there in, in, in the, in the uh, amphitheaters of Rome at this particular time. But our society has a more sophisticated way of doing this. You see, we can vicariously enter into the sins of others by watching movies, playing video games, or through pornography. You are vicariously entering into the sins of others. And you're the football chapter. Three questions I would leave with us. The first one is this Where is the American society, the culture we live in, in the scale of things as given in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to 32? Where is the culture we live in? Second question I'd like to ask is this. How long does it take for a man or woman or a society to go from step one to step seven? ourselves into a culture described in verses 29 to 31. What would, one, what would make God's people desire to assimilate themselves into a culture described in these? last verses. 
You know, it's no doubt in my mind that the Apostle Paul was describing the Roman culture that surrounded the church in the city of Rome. And it's no wonder that the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, when he said, I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you sent your bodies living sacrifice. See, the opposite of this moral degeneration is to present your body a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And do not conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Isn't that a powerful, wonderful challenge for each of us? And it will keep us into the simple culture of the city. I'm done. Like the real preacher would usually say, that's all I have to say, and sit down. That's it. Do you say, thank God? Think about these things. As I said, this, this is not a nice picture that we're given here. And, and I, would, uh, I, I would encourage you for tomorrow evening, I'm going to be looking at Romans, uh, the, the, the theme verse uh, for tomorrow, tomorrow evening is Romans chapter 3 and verse 9, where it says, it says all are under sin. But, but I'm, I'm really, I'm, the extensive text that I'll be looking at and give exposition to tomorrow is beginning in chapter 2, verse 1, all the way through chapter 3 and verse 20. So uh, I, I again encourage you and invite you to read this passage uh, before you come to church tomorrow evening. And I believe that God will bless you for it. Would you stand with me? Can we, can we just sing by memory a verse of that song on the seven that says, Heaven is a holy place, filled with glory and with grace, sin can never enter. Heaven is a holy place, filled with glory and with grace, sin can never enter. All within its gates are pure, from defilement self secure, sin can never enter them. Sin can never enter them. Sin can never enter them. All within its You can never answer them. Lord, I pray your divine protection over the minds of each one gathered here in your presence this evening. And because of the, uh, the rawness of this text, I pray that you would help us to understand the seriousness of sin and the perversity of sin. Give us an abhorrence for sin. And 
help us to see the beauty, the beauty of holiness, the beauty of a life that is holy Lord, we pray, we pray, would you draw us to yourself, and we just want to love you, and Lord, we want to serve you, and want to experience the ultimate joy that comes from being in your presence. Having you as our Lord and Savior. Thank you. Thank you this evening for the redemption, for the forgiveness of sins, and for the cleansing of the blood of Jesus upon our lives. Lord, I pray that each one of us would reflect your image as we go about in our world. Help us, Lord, enable us to be a light in this dark world. Thank you that that's possible. As well as to fill us by the Holy Spirit and cause us to go forth boldly declaring the gospel of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Dismiss us now with your blessing and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise Thank you for enjoying this again.